0: With two retired detectives That were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic They got some stories and some jokes Even an interview with the most popular folks Off the cuff, off the cuff One episode just saying enough Get a little letter and in an interview too thing you
1: can do Wow, it's pretty cool intro there, huh? I'm liking it. It's the first <laughs> time that I'm seeing it while I'm on the uh, on the show. And who are those two handsome guys at the oh, end? Oh,
2: my God. Uh, you know, they seem like they're actors, but they're not. They're just re- actually real police turned uh, podcasters, you know?
1: Yes, yes.
2: So, there folks, we- welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today and on most days is my co-host, Straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. What's going on, Phil?
1: Well, I want to give a shout out and a salute to Angie on that uh, promo, that uh, the the uh, the open actually. That was pretty good. I like it, and uh, yeah, impressive. I'm. Uh, I think we're growing a little in that direction, and uh, it shows that we're uh, we're not just sitting around uh, BSing, so to speak.
2: Well, Which you know, like, I told I told everyone
1: word. I had to. I
2: went live the other day. Uh, with with Joe Murray and I told everyone that you were off to Atlantic City, offering uh, Mo Green to buy him out of his uh, casino.
1: <laughs> and he you know, people, he didn't take the offer, so he might be needing new glasses real
2: soon. You know, Phil, sometimes people don't get that joke. That means they're not as old as us. You know, yeah, yeah, they're not so- Godfather of aficionados like yeah. us, but. Uh, Go watch I, I, The Godfather and see who Mo Green is, and you'll figure it out. I, I was hoping they would appreciate that joke, but some of them, uh, some of my, obviously didn't get it. So, we're going to be covering the um, Gabby Petito case. Um, the more we dig into this case, there's, you know, there's not new things going on every day, but there's a lot of stuff to analyze, uh, even though it's not brand new. Obviously, what we would appreciate to know about is. What's going on in the hunt for Brian Laundrie? What's going on in regards to the evidence? How come the autopsy results uh, haven't been released as per cause of death of uh, Gabby Petito? Ourselves, retired law enforcement, just like the public and the people that we serve out there, we would like to know some of these answers. However, it seems to be being held very close to the vest and we're not getting much information.
1: Yeah, Bill, uh, that's been a little bit, uh, troubling to me that, uh, the cause of death was obviously homicide. We know that, uh, the manner in which she was, uh, killed and, um, you know, that caused them to come to the conclusion of homicide still hasn't been revealed and the body hasn't been released to the family, which I think is, uh, actually, uh, quite odd. I don't think I've ever seen that more than a couple of days that the body's held. I'm sure there's reasons for it. Uh, they're digging in on the investigation and, uh, whatever their, uh, reasoning is to hold the body, may they want to, uh, conclude more extensive examination and testing that way they can have a, uh, a better, more solid case, uh, against whoever it was. And we obviously know who the number one primary suspect is, uh, to put together a case that's going to stick and, uh, come with a, uh, conviction at the end of a trial. Of course, uh, You know the criminal justice system. That's the way the system is set up. That you get your day in court. So uh, they're probably dotting their i's and crossing their t's. And I don't know if this is the case. But the only uh, thing that I could come up with is that maybe the family plans to cremate the remains, and so they want to get only one crack at the uh, at the body to do uh, you know to do the examination. So that might be where it's headed. Uh, We don't know about that. Uh, I'm just a little frustrated. It seems to be that. You know the case is starting to lose some uh, some steam in the media, so to speak, and uh, we don't want that, right, Bill? We want this case to stay in the media spotlight because uh, the capture of Brian is the most paramount thing at this point. And I think, and I, we discussed it earlier before we we're on the air. You know, uh, somebody could walk past someone in a gas station coming out of a bathroom or, uh, you know, a seven 11 or something like that. And if the picture is up in the media every day in newspapers and, and in print and on the social media and the internet, uh, someone might spark uh, Hey, that's, that looks like Brian and this might lead to the capture. So I'm a little frustrated that it's starting to die down. So I think why we're doing the show today is to get it back in the spotlight. Hopefully, uh, we can get out to as many people as possible and, you know, maybe bring Brian to justice. That's the goal of uh, everyone involved and everyone that's interested in this case is at this point, you know, we, uh, we know that uh, the family's go- going through their grieving process and we sympathize with them, but the most paramount thing is bringing Brian in alive and let him stand trial. You know, Phil, let me, I'm going to put a
2: video up, share a video. Uh, I think um the- Hang on a second. I, I may have uh, screwed up with the sound on this. Well,
1: well, this this video you're going to put up has a lot of good new content that we'll discuss. I actually watched the whole episode, so I think uh, we'll get some good new content. Even though it is, doesn't seem like there's a lot of new stuff going on, there is some things that we haven't discussed and maybe not uh, regularly known on the media. So, uh, yeah, that video should be interesting.
2: Yeah, let me just uh – there's always little technical difficulties here, but I'll get I'll get it together. I promise. Yeah,
1: well, while uh, you're doing that, I'll just bring up that uh, Dr. Phil made a twenty-five thousand dollar donation to the Gabby Petito Fund uh, Foundation, which they're going to. Uh, they started a foundation in the name to help other people, uh, other families of missing people to help find them. So I
0: thought. Right. That I, got, I got
1: the video. It's so uh,
2: okay, okay. up. Okay.
0: Gabby Petito's parents and step parents opening up about their desperate attempts to find answers. Telling Dr. Phil when they stopped hearing from Gabby, their first calls and texts were to Brian Laundrie's parents, who they say never replied.
3: A normal parent, when you text someone that they're going to call the cops because you can't find your child, they would reply.
0: Nothing. No response. No,
4: nothing. I do believe they know a lot more information than oh, yeah.
0: putting out there. In response to the Petito family's claims, a lawyer for the Laundrie family replied, no comment. Laundrie's sister, Cassie, also speaking out in a new interview.
4: I don't know if my parents are involved. I think if they are, then they should come clean.
0: The Laundry family attorney has told NBC News in the past that Brian's parents do not know where he is and did not assist in his disappearance. A lawyer for the Laundry family telling NBC News Brian left Utah on August 17th, five days after the couple was stopped by police. The lawyer says Brian then flew back to Utah August 23rd to rejoin Gabby on their cross-country road trip. On September 19th, Gabby's remains were found near a campground in the Bridger Teton National Forest. At some point in between, Laundrie drove back to his parents' Florida home alone with the van the pair had been using on their trip. Gabby's family believes Laundrie is still out there. They have one simple message for him turn yourself in turn yourself, turn in. yourself in turn, turn yourself,
3: yourself in you're only making it worse for us and for himself and for his family let us have some closure
0: petito's family revealing gabby and brian used to camp and hike along the appalachian trail especially in the north carolina woods now being combed by local authorities after several people in the area called into the haywood county sheriff's office believing they'd spotted Laundrie. He was acting
3: funny. And I wasn't sure about what he looked like. And then I got, I went and parked and pull, pulled up the photographs of him. And I'm 99.99% sure that was him.
0: Carrie, Brian Laundrie's sister spoke out again about her brother. She has a message for him. What is that? That's right, Hoda. Uh, she told NBC News in a quote, We're here for him if he needs us, and we just want the right thing to be done for everybody's family. Meantime, this comes as the Petito family attorney alleges that Brian Laundrie used Gabby's bank card for that trip back home. The authorities say they have been unable to confirm that the card he used for that travel was indeed Gabby's. All right, Kerry Sanders for us in Lauderdale, Florida. Kerry, thank you. Hey, thanks
1: for watching our.
2: Well, that seems to be a little bit of uh, untimely news since that um, we had found out, in fact, the FBI confirmed by issuing a search warrant, excuse me, an arrest warrant for an unlawful use of an access device that that is in fact true, that he did use her card on his trip home from Wyoming.
1: Yeah, I was uh, very encouraged by that uh, that, uh, particular uh, charge because I felt like... Uh, you know, we can get him into custody and then continue the murder investigation and put together whatever facts, evidence, uh, interviews, uh, telephone or electronics, uh, you know, all of that stuff takes time. So putting him in a, uh, in the, uh, in the clink, so to speak, and uh, having hands on him, knowing where he is, I think was a, a great strategic move on part of law enforcement. I know Joe Murray, our good friend that's been on the show a few times, uh, disagrees with that. But uh, from a uh, law enforcement standpoint, and as a detective that investigated many homicides, uh, being in the uh, arena of a, a very, very difficult uh, homicide investigation, I thought there was a tremendous strategic move to do that. Uh, we've talked about it before bill and uh you know uh, i've had some other disagreements with joe regarding uh, his opinions on uh you know what he thinks about the parents and stuff i mean from the show the other day um i could point out i know he takes a defense attorney standpoint uh his view his point of view is from a defense attorney view and i get it believe me but uh his opinion was that uh you know maybe the Family wasn't involved and uh, they were just doing the best thing for their son and all, but I take great exception to that. I really believe like, uh, you know, he was heavily involved in relationship with Gabby and, uh, you know, something happens to her. She's obviously killed. And, you know, who's he calling? Who's he talking to? Uh, He takes this long ride home. I don't think he listened to the radio uh, with the windows open, with the wind blowing in his hair. I'm sure that he made calls. He probably called his family. And I think the wheels were set in motion from that point when he was traveling back to Florida. Uh, I think that the wheels were set in motion then to try and help him evade capture and, uh, you know, uh, exclude himself from this investigation. And if, in fact, the family was not involved, I mean Brian Laundry's family, if they were not involved or they didn't know, when he returned, they had to ask him. They had to ask him. This is 100%. Where's Gabby? And his whatever his response was, when the family started to call them and you heard it from their own words on the Dr. Phil show, that they started to reach out and they got no response. That's, That's for sure. Volumes. That's because
2: uh- I want to thank duty Ron for a $10 super chat and TW for $5 super chat. And who says, I sadly believe we won't get much info for some time since there are so many eyeballs on this case. Everyone is in CYA mode, which in New York parlance means cover your ass mode. And I mean, I look, there were some mistakes in this investigation and there are mistakes made in every investigation. It's just how big the mistakes are, whether it's a, um, And a big, you know, we used to say on the police department, uh, there's something called an attaboy. When you do well, they say, attaboy, attaboy. And when you, when you screw up, it's called an ah shit. And they, they used to say it takes a hundred attaboys to, to get rid of one ah shit, you know, and that's, that's true. That's very true in police work. And of course there's, um, with cameras on everything these days, everything can be analyzed and, uh, questioned and Monday morning quarterbacked. And I wonder what other professions, and I've said this before, could withstand 24 seven surveillance on their conduct at work. I wonder how many could do that mistake free. I think very, very few, you know, and the police do have a camera on them 24 seven. And they have many people uh, critiquing the work that they do every single day, you know, and, you know, as I said before, and I can, I know you can't compare being a surgeon to a doctor. I mean, to a cop. Right. But but surgeons across this country are doing thousands of operations every day. Some will make mistakes. Some mistakes will cause people their lives. But is there a camera watching them make the cuts they do? No, I don't think so. And again, I don't want to try to compare it. Also canine search and rescue canine mom. Do you guys think they're doing what U.S. Marshals did with Tom Sharkey murder indictment? Thoughts? I'm not familiar with that case. Uh, you no, fill-
1: no, I'm not familiar with it. But uh, I mean, U.S. Marshals probably are going to have a, a hand in this uh, fugitive enforcement trying to locate him. So I'm sure whatever, um, you know, assets that are out there to help uh, th- those things are being utilized. I'm sure I, I was actually saying to Bill earlier before we went on the air that I'm a little bit perturbed. You know, I'm, I'm a little dismayed that he hasn't been found yet. I mean, of course, there has been a, a tremendous media uh, spotlight on this case. And his pitch has been everywhere, all over social media. I believe on the Dr. Phil show, they said there were uh, over uh, well over a million hashtags, I think uh, up to a billion hashtags, Gabby Petito. So there's definitely tremendous spotlight on it. It seems to be, you know, less to, uh, in the last couple of days. That's why I think we want to get it back into the media and hopefully, uh, we can bring them to justice. But, uh, I think as much as can be done is being done. I would, I'd be very confident in making that statement. U.S. Marshals, uh, state police, FBI, this, this very, very, uh, very much, uh, you know, a lot of law enforcement involved in this investigation at this point, trying to hunt him down. The manhunt is, uh is is great. It's great. You right? know, Phil, I just want to
2: mention something. And uh, besides Joe Murray, who's our good friend and an attorney, a defense attorney, former police officer, we also had Judge Patricia Domango on this case. And you and I take it as a given because we're from the law enforcement perspective. We take it as a given that Brian Laundrie is involved in the murder of Gabby Petito. In fact, we take it almost as a given that he did it, yet we're, we're taking what we call in law enforcement as circumstantial evidence, indicating that to us. Uh, and I'll just go over a few pieces of circumstantial evidence: the the um, well advertised and well documented August 12th argument where the Moab police pulled them over, and there appeared to be signs of domestic violence going on, and they separated them. No one was arrested. Uh, I believe it was days later, Brian flew home back to Florida. Initially, no one knew that. He stayed for a period of time, and then he came back. He goes back on the 27th, and I'm cutting, I'm not. there's other things happening in between this. On the 27th, they get in a big fight inside a restaurant. That is earlier in the day of the day that she was allegedly killed, which we believe to be. Sometime in the early evening or later evening of the 27th. At some point, uh, I don't know if the whole hitchhiking story is true or not. Uh, That was also on the 27th. He returns back to Florida, arrives on September 1st, and mentions nothing about, allegedly mentions nothing about Gabby to his parents. For us, that's too much. We do not believe that. There's more circumstantial evidence. He drove her van back. He used her uh, debit card, which was called an access card. More circumstantial evidence because he used her debit card or access card. Does that mean he killed her? No. But that he came back to Florida with her van without her, said nothing about does that mean he killed her? No. But for us, law enforcement officers,
1: we look at that circumstantial evidence as pretty damn powerful. Thoughts? Yeah, I think I want to expand even a little further. He comes back And the family decides he's been away for two months on a camping trip. They decide to go buy a trailer and take a camping trip on the very day that Gabby's reported missing. And, you know, all of these different things that are happening, uh, they're not what we would expect would be of the norm. What I mean by that is, is that uh, Gabby lived with that family for two years. They go off on this trip in early July. And he returns September first without her, and business as usual. Life goes on. She, he's got her van. He's using her credit card. I mean, these are not you know norms. They're not normal to us. This is where we're going with our you know thinking. Uh, you want to call it circumstantial evidence. It's what's leading us to be suspicious of Brian Laundrie, obviously, and as well as his family. Look who oh, uh, joined us. Look who came in out of I just
2: cyberspace. You can't hear us? She's all the way from the Netherlands. She dropped in uh, Gisela. Oh, she's got something with her. Can you hear us, Gisela?
5: Now I can hear you. Hello. Okay,
2: how are you? How are you? I thought if you weren't doing anything and you had an alarm clock, what time is it in the Netherlands right now?
5: Right now it's 20 past 10 in the evening.
2: Oh, that's not too bad. No, that's it's not that, too
5: bad. That's you, to you're think.
2: probably in your disco outfit, getting ready to go right. out and do some dancing. Exactly. You know,
5: right, right, right. But you know,
2: Gisela, I just wanted to say, and I think Phil would agree with this. You've done some really outstanding coverage with this, as far Thank as you. documenting it, and do you, you do a lot of work. Thank you. I wish you could do some of that work for me, and uh, you know, right, do, right. Uh, <laughs> and do some of
1: the timelines and stuff. But uh, right. yeah. I, I think you're doing some great work with this.
5: Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, 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 say, I sent you a message. I saw, on your yesterday you posted something that you're proud of yourself, and I sent you a message, and you really should be. Uh, you worked hard, and everybody that's in this podcast business knows that it's not easy. It's very difficult to put on to a professional anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, you should be very proud of yourself. And and I, when I did your interview, uh, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, I said, you're a force to be reckoned with, and I think <laughs> I, I mean, it through.
5: stuck with me. I'm like, I am a now.
1: <laughs> I was like, I
5: will, I will carve it up over here. It's you guys yes. literally inspired me to start my channel. So thank you so well, much. Well,
2: thank you, uh, Steve yeah. Cologne. Thanks for the 9.99 super chat. He says, haven't been able to catch too many live shows lately. Good to be back. Well, Steve, welcome back. It <laughs> are great. And all you folks that are fans of Gisela, you know, I know we're not as pretty as her. I don't say, I don't say demand. I don't say demand, and I don't say. I don't have this articulate uh, language, and neither does Phil. We talk with these New York accents, coffee, and boss, and stuff like that. But, you know, if you like police off the cuff, and you want to hit us up on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, and give us a thumbs up because we love your, uh, we love Gisela. So, you know, and she likes to. Co- she likes to carve it up. We, like we, we carve it up
1: once in a while too. We like, we like to carve
2: it up.
5: We're gonna carve it up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
2: getting back uh to the case. And sorry, uh Gisela, we spent enough time talking about you. We do love you, but okay, we gotta okay. get, we gotta we get like back to, get to, back to, the, back to the case. business. We gotta get right, back to right. the case. So, you know, uh some of the folk, the legal folks that have spoken about this case, you know, Joe Murray, uh, Judge Patricia DeMongo. They're playing, I feel they are, and this is just their, the nature of their work, being uh, lawyers. They play devil's advocate and say, wait, what evidence is there that mm-hmm. he did this? What evidence is there? We don't know the cause of death. Yeah. How do we know that it is, in fact, a murder, not a homicide? A homicide can actually be an accidental death. It can be you know, caused yeah. by another, but not necessarily uh, illegal. So they play devil's advocate and they'll say, well, show me the evidence. And But for me, a cop and for Phil, a cop, all of that circumstantial evidence that I just enumerated mm-hmm. is super, super important to me. And look at Joe Murray's banging on the door already. Uh, <laughs> Joe Murray, I'm still leaving the door open on this, Bill. I love that you are bringing this up because past behavior is the best predictor of future conduct. Brian is separated from Gabby at least, uh, at least twice. So- That's one of the favorite expressions of anyone in law enforcement. It's like, oh, why do you got to bring up his past? Well, because past conduct is a very good indicator of future conduct. Yeah. So
1: that's why we bring it up in the law enforcement realm. Phil, thoughts? Well, I mean, listen, uh, police work 101 you put somebody in the box to interview them, you're going to want to know what their past criminal history is like. So you can, you know, bring up certain points. And uh, if there's a a history of domestic violence between Gabby and Brian, which we obviously know there is by the August 12th video, I mean, that plays right into motive. And that plays right into uh, who we would look at based on her disappearance. So, uh, you know, that's, that's police work 101. That's basics for me. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You know, I want to bring up
2: a short uh, little video also of um, of uh, Brian Laundry's sister. She seems to All be right. taking a, an opposite stance of. Um,
1: she of she Brian. was called out. She was called out. So yeah, it's, it's play that video. That's going to be of, a- uh,
2: yeah of the rest of the family. She's taking a little bit of a different stance. So I'd like to pull this up and we'll play yeah. it
3: on the camping trip that Brian took with his parents after he returned home without Gabby Petito. Cassie insists she still doesn't know where her brother is.
4: No, I do not know where Brian is.
3: i turn him in. Okay, Cassie Laundrie attempting to set the record straight, speaking out for the first time since Gabby Petito's body was found and her brother Brian was reported missing later named a person of interest in Petito's murder and wanted by the FBI in a fraud investigation.
4: I really wish he had come to me first that day with the van because I don't think we'd be here. I worry about him. I hope he's okay. And then I'm angry and I don't know what to think. I would tell my brother to just come forward and get us out of this horrible mess. And now detailing the last time she saw her brother. The last time I physically saw and the last time I physically spoke to my brother was on the 6th. I've tried to get in touch with him. Phone went to voicemail.
3: Cassie sharing this photo exclusively with ABC News showing Brian and his five-year-old nephew camping at Fort DeSoto Park with their parents five days before Gabby was reported missing.
4: We just went for a couple of hours and we ate dinner and had s'mores around the campfire and left. And there was nothing peculiar about it. There was no feeling of grand goodbye. There was no nothing. I'm frustrated that in hindsight, I didn't pick up on anything. It was just a regular visit.
3: By the time Gabby was found, 13 days later, Brian had already vanished. The day Cassie learned of his disappearance, she says she immediately told investigators about that camping trip.
4: It was not hidden from law enforcement. I've been cooperating with the police since day one. I have been in touch with law enforcement. And now she's calling on her parents to do the same. Justice for would look like having someone come forward and tell the truth. I don't know if my parents are involved. I think if they are, then they should come clean. Cassie says her
3: brother has taken multiple trips for up to five days at a time on the Appalachian Trail where multiple tips have been reported and over the weekend a possible sighting was reported to investigators along the nearly 2,200 mile trail near the Tennessee North Carolina border. I wasn't sure about what he looked like and then I went and parked and pulled up the photographs of him. And I'm 99.99% sure that was him. Police have said they're factoring in Brian's reported skills living off the grid in their search for him. But Cassie says it's unusual for him to be gone for this
4: long. I'd say Brian's a mediocre survivalist. It wouldn't surprise me if he could last out there a very long time. But also, I don't think anything would surprise me at this point. If the FBI finds him in... Timbuktu, I'd be like, alright, well that's where he was. I've got I've got nothing. I hope my brother is alive because I want answers just as much as everybody else.
2: Is there something on your cheek here?
4: Looks like did, did he get did you get hit in the face? Well to be honest,
5: I definitely not first.
4: Did he hit you though? I mean I mean it's okay if you're saying you hit him and then uh, I understand if he hit
2: you, but we wanna know the truth if he actually hit you. Well like he like grabbed me like with the
4: nail.
3: She says the body cam video from the Moab, Utah police encounter is hard to watch.
4: It's definitely painful to see everybody just be upset. It was pretty typical of them to um, argue and try and take space from each other. But people saying they saw public domestic violence, I've never seen anything like that from either of them.
3: Now she wonders if more could have been done.
4: I definitely feel like if they had all of the 911 calls from the multiple people, they said that I think that it would have gone a lot differently and we'd be in a different situation.
3: Cassie says she's as concerned as she is for her brother. She is mourning for Gabby and wants her family to know her heart is with them.
4: I've been cooperating so that everyone gets answers. They deserve answers.
3: Gabby's parents sending a message to Brian on the Dr. Phil show.
5: If you truly loved her, you should turn yourself in.
2: You know, I think you know it comes back a lot to uh you see people are still sort of blaming the Moab police for um mm. that encounter. Uh would it would it, a different reaction by them if they would have arrested someone would that have stopped the murder? Which again, we're taking for granted that Brian committed the murder. But that happened on the 12th and we believe that the homicide, the murder occurred on August 27th. So that's 15 days after the Moab police. Gisela, what do you feel about that?
5: Well, I don't think that the police are trained to handle, say, domestic violence cases like that. So I think they did their job. Maybe it was a little inappropriate to build a bit of rapport and be like my wife this and insert their own stories, but I understand why they did it. But I agree with what you're saying that it's 15 days later and we still don't know what happened. It could have been someone else. It could have been... I just find Brian's behavior after that really strange. <laughs> That's what makes him look so guilty, is what him and his parents are doing after this date of Gabby dying. That's very questionable.
2: You know, but I, I question also, I know, uh, Gisela, you uh, made this statement, and many people make the statement that yeah. the police aren't trained to handle domestic violence. What more could they have done on that scene? They spent over an hour at that scene, there were at least six, yeah. to, six to eight police officers there. There was a female police officer there. Yeah, They split them up. They interviewed them, re-interviewed them. They did. They at the, that point had access to the 911 calls, which we at that time didn't. Yeah. So what From a civilian's point of view, and because Phil and I have been the hundreds of these domestic violence incidents, from your point of view, what did they do wrong?
5: I think it's just, um, obviously, putting Brian up in a motel and Gabby taking the van when she said she wasn't comfortable with that, even though it's her van. I understand why they did that. But in domestic violence cases, separation becomes the most dangerous time. That's like to separate them that way without checking on them the next day, which I don't know if they did or didn't. That's dangerous. If you say, we're going to check you in, and we're coming here at 8 in the morning, and we will check how you guys are doing and what the plan is, that could have helped, but just to separate them and say, like, bye, ooh, that was so dangerous, even though we know that 15 days later, as you say, that is when a homicide occurred, according to what we know, but it's like the separation part is dangerous in domestic violence cases, because then, let's say, if, if Brian was a, an abuser, that's when the resentment really builds, and the rage and the control gets even worse, so I think it's just that, you know, handling that separation not- process.
1: You know, I I don't think that police officers are not well-trained in domestic violence. That's one of the things that we learn in the police academy. And then what you would call on-the-job training when you interact with, uh, you know, family disputes are very common, uh, at least they were for me in the NYPD. I mean, you could go on four or five a tour, uh, sometimes more than that. But the point is that everyone now is saying it's very dangerous to separate them. That's what we're taught in a police mm. academy to separate, uh, two people that are, you know, they're hot and, and they're, they're excited. And sometimes that gives them a time to calm down, reflect, and maybe figure out how, you know, maybe listen, I've said it before. Sometimes police interaction accelerates, uh, domestic violence. And sometimes it D de- out, de- uh, decelerates domestic yeah. violence. So you really don't know. And what you said, Dr. Phil said the same thing on his show. When he had the families on, he said yeah. that, you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing. I mean, he may have recognized, you know, he's obviously a psychologist. He's had uh, extensive, extensive training, and he may have picked up on some things in Gabby's posture that day that Mm -hmm. we as police officers might not be so well trained in. But, I mean, you know, you can't have a social worker or a psychologist riding around with you in a radio car all day for specifically, you know, domestic violence (laughs) calls. So, I I mean, listen, and listen, I'm not trying to – you know, I'm law enforcement. I have blood running for uh, blue blood running for my veins. So I am definitely (laughs) biased towards law enforcement, but I'm going to be very objective here and say that they went the extra mile. Like Bill stated, he pointed out, they brought in a female police officer. They Mm -hmm. did a separate interview with her separated from Brian and they, they, they queried her numerous times. Did he hit you? Did he hit you? You know? So what the information they were presented with that day. And what they did they, in New York City, it would have never gotten as much time as it got. It just wasn't. There's too many calls. They would yeah. have gotten maybe half that time. And I don't know how far, depending on the individual offices that responded to the call. I don't know how much time they would have, uh, you know, spent on this particular call. But I think they went above and beyond. They did what you know. Listen. I, I said to Billy earlier, if we had a do-over, if they had a do-over, they would definitely yeah. do it over, knowing what the result was going to be now, and put him in handcuffs. But you know, it's not a perfect world; we don't have that luxury. I, yeah. I think to put blame on them and say, "Well, if you guys would have done this, this girl would be alive." I don't think we could really. No, say no, that. I, no. I really don't think. We uh,
2: Jamie Pimentel, uh, great, great question, great comment. Exactly, Sergeant Bill. The police can do. Uh, Domestic violence job is separate. All parties get every part of their story and statement together, the facts, then determine whether to call and file a report or, you know, I had mentioned uh, early on in this case, and I had thought not privy to all the information in real time. I had said, because I've been to hundreds and hundreds of uh, domestic violence calls, and I was the boss. So the buck stopped with me. And Mm -hmm. if I didn't make the right decision, they didn't blame the cops. They blamed Sergeant Cannon. And the cops were very willing to say, Sergeant Cannon was on the scene, you know, if something (laughs) went wrong. So guess what? It never went wrong because I always did it by the book. This case, had I known everything and all the information that the officers made, and I said earlier, I thought they did a great job. However, I didn't know about the call about Brian smacking her. Mm -hmm. And guess what? After the investigation, I think I would have locked both of them up.
5: You're right? Yeah. 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 Because
2: there was evidence that she hit him across the face with a phone. He yeah. had assaulted her. So to, really, it's sad that I would have to do that. But yeah. now, because of all the 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 light that shined on this case mm-hmm. and all the people Monday morning quarterbacking, I would have made sure I did it right. And how could anyone criticize me? Oh, the sergeant came on the scene. He mm-hmm. interviewed everyone. He talked to all the officers, and his decision was to arrest both of them.
1: Yeah. Billy, that's a great point that you brought up. I think that that probably would have been the right thing to do to mm-hmm. arrest both of them, just, you know, because the police aren't the judge. They are you know, we're, we're presented with a situation and you have to make a judgment call on what action to take. But at the end of the day, it goes to court and the courts decide. So even with that said, let's say that both of them would have been placed into custody overnight. They probably would have gotten a court date uh, for some time in the future. And we may have had the same result. Anyhow, that's the point that mm-hmm. I want to make. I think that you, you're calling it right, Bill. That's the right call that if, yeah maybe both of them would have been uh, arrested. Listen, it could have decelerated it down to a point where she went home to Long Island and he went back to Florida and none of this would have happened, or it could have been the same result. They hooked up again the next day or days following, and, uh, you know, the uh, domestic violence starts accelerating, something sets off one and the other, and and then, uh, you know, you have the, the same result. So we really don't know. Saul, uh,
2: I, I, this is a pretty good comment. Police should have noticed that the victim was joking and laughing, and she was almost in a panic attack. Didn't add up. You're talking about Brian was joking and laughing. However, if you noticed, he was over-apologizing. In my police experience, whenever someone over-apologized, the next thing I did was pull out my handcuffs because <laughs> I felt they were – have you heard of that term playing possum? Yeah. <laughs> I almost felt that that was akin to that, that yeah. he was playing you – know, he was apologizing for breathing – Oh, I'm sorry. I hit the curb. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry about, about this. You know, he was a little too, a little too
1: cooperative, so to speak. Yes. You know? And you know? whenever I, yeah. my
2: police career, whenever that happened, I was expecting the guy to hit me in any, any minute. <laughs> so i rather than get hit, I pulled out my cuffs and made sure he couldn't hit me, <laughs> you know, and I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I found that akin to playing possum. I don't know, Phil, if you feel the same way.
1: Oh no, I, I definitely do. Yeah, he was—he was a little too cooperative, and uh, and also he made uh, a statement that uh, they said something about having water, and the cop was going to go get it from. said, no, no, I'm okay. I don't. He didn't want them in the van. So listen, there's a lot of things we can dissect right now. Mm-hmm. We have the time to do it. Um, there's just there's so many things that you you know you want to say about this case, but uh, I don't think criticizing. MOAB police department at this point is really constructive. Look, uh, maybe based on what happened, other police agencies, other police officers throughout the world might maybe take a second look at something based on this case. So let's hope for that. Um, but to criticize them and, and point the finger at them, I think there's more criticism to be pointed at the uh, Laundry family. I mean, based yeah. on uh, the Sister Cassie's interview, I mean, she's doing what you would expect family members or extended family members to do if something like this happened. And you know, Brian's mother and father are not doing any of that. She, she, she offered condolence to the family. She said, if I knew where my brother was, I would turn him in. And that's a hard thing to say. It's your brother. And, but, you know, based on what's going on, you know, he's not walking away from this. There's no, you know, if he didn't do it, let's, come in, work with law enforcement. Let's have your attorneys and, and, and the investigation, you know, let the chips fall. where they are going to fall? And mm-hmm. I don't think that somebody who is innocent is going to be proven guilty so easily in our system. I think our system of justice works pretty well. I mean, there's a the rare occasion where it happens, but uh, you know, listen, she was with Brian. She disappeared while she was in his custody. Or with yeah. him on this trip, so he's got some answers that he's got to come mm-hmm. up with, you know. But going back to Cassie, uh, I think that she's taken the right posture. Her posture and her actions are what you would expect. That's normal behavior. Not what her mo- mom and dad are doing. No way. They're, no. A, they're 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 making themselves look guilty, and they're yeah. not, they're not helping Brian by doing it either. I think that was pointed out many times. Gisela, yeah. you
2: have you have a comment on what Phil was just talking about? I don't want you to be shy because it's not your show you can talk as much as you want. Oh, yeah. Just don't use the <laughs> word demand.
5: Demanding. I'm demanding.
2: Carve it up, Gisela.
1: Carve oh, it
5: up. up. Carve it up. I just think what's important, it's not, um, especially on my channel, I'm not criticizing police, the police officers. It's just what can we learn from it is how dangerous speculatively, narcissists. If Brian was a narcissist, narcissism is so dangerous. And they do manipulate like that and over-apologize like that and play that little role of like, he was a very good boy there. You know, I'm so compliant and fist pumping. So to give a narcissist, if he was one, the power to be like, ooh, I'm being put up in a motel. It gives him some kind of power and it can really make things worse, which no one would know if they're not psychologists. You know what I mean? So it's not for the police to do that. But that's very dangerous. So if the world could just know narcissists are very dangerous, that's already one step closer to this never happening again because it happens all the time.
2: Of course it does. Angela Eng, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. She says, Moab assessed the level of threat, separated the two parties, and de-escalated. And Angela Eng, for you guys that don't know, uh, she's a retired NYPD detective. So um, yeah, it's coming not only from- great
1: uh, job on our open, Angela. Thank you so much.
2: It's uh, not only <laughs> from a female perspective, but she's former law enforcement. She's retired law enforcement. You know, Lieutenant Pete, uh, the great Lieutenant Pete from Harlem Raiders, who if you guys don't know, Lieutenant Pete was a famous lieutenant from the 3-2 precinct when the 3-2 was close to being uh, downtown Baghdad in the days he worked there. And he also was a great street crime lieutenant. So Lieutenant Pete uh, Pranzo, I'm talking about, he knows all about observing human behavior because uh, street crime. For you guys that don't know, it was a famous unit on the NYPD, and they took more guns off the street than any single unit on the NYPD. And uh, unfortunately, because of all the defund police and the anti-police rhetoric, they were disbanded about three or four years ago. And as a result, one of the many parts of it of disbanding them is gun violence is out of control in New York City. Part two of that is that the NYP gets disbanded anti-crime. Anti-crime is a plainclothes precinct level that does the same thing that street crime does. Street crime is a city-wide plainclothes unit that goes to all the hot spots, the hottest precincts in the city. They go there, they spend 30 days there, and then they get out of there. That's the way the plan used to be. But they were disbanded. Maybe because you're too successful, people get jealous. But Lieutenant Pete, the reason I brought this up was He knows how to spot people that have guns. He knows how to spot apparent behavior. He knows how to spot behavior that's not fitting the scenario that you're in. Yeah. And that's that's an important thing. And Gisela, I just would like to comment on one thing because many people criticize the police and I'm not criticizing you for criticizing the police. Everyone has that right. But people always say that, oh, if a social worker was there, I don't think a social worker would have done anything differently. And the cost of doing that is prohibitive so when all these people say that and it, it goes another pet peeve i have is everyone always says the police need more training and when they say that you're right they do but guess what no one wants to pay for it you're right because training <laughs> costs money and training takes takes cops off the road so yeah. when you hear a politician say that tell him to shut up because he's <laughs> he's lying he yeah. or she is lying though no, you don't mean that mr politician Because it costs money, which you're not willing to spend. And part Mm. two is
1: it takes cops off the road. Sorry that I'm so intense about that. No, 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 no. There's a point I want to bring up about that real quick. Listen, Monday morning quarterbacking is what we're talking about. We call that, you know, a game on Sunday night, Monday morning. Everybody, (laughs) you know, they they know the outcome of the game. It's easy to talk about what they should have done or did wrong. Now, when you have a social worker interjected into a, a violent situation those, let's say, two police officers ride with a social worker. They now have to worry about de escalating the situation, obviously. That's number one paramount you know, let's get rid of the violence, de-escalate it. But now they have to worry about that social worker. They have the safety of that social worker is in, is on them. They have to protect themselves. They have to protect the two people yeah. that are fighting or whoever's fighting. And they now have to protect that social worker. That social worker is not trained in police tactics. So you have another component that the police officers have to try and protect. It's difficult. But Gisela, I want to say one other thing. That uh, uh, observation that you made about narcissism, it's, that was great. I think from a civilian perspective, you're right on track, 100%. And just so you know, Dr. Phil, who's obviously a trained psychologist yeah. and an attorney, he he categorized Brian as a narcissistic, narcissistic self-abuse. Uh, let me say this again. A narcissistic self-absorbed abuser. I think that category yeah. is correct. And he picked mm-hmm. up on that right away. So all of those traits that he was displaying while he was stopped by the police yeah. in Moab on the 12th were obviously, like you said, over apologetic. And these are all symptoms of uh, yeah. you know, a narcissist. So and a narcissist never takes blame. It's never them that's the problem, it's always someone else. They're mm-hmm. always the victim. And specifically with abusers, they always try to point to, well, she made me hit her. Those are the things that I heard when Mm -hmm. I was uh, dealing with domestic violence. But she called me up and caused me to go over there and slap her around. Or she did this thing. And and, uh, so they never take blame. And I think that that's what we're dealing with here, unfortunately, you know. Bobby Anthony,
2: uh, this is a great question. If both were arrested, would there have been a restraining order in place that made them uh, separate? Very possibly. Good question. I've seen judges write a restraining order against two people that lived in the same apartment. And they would actually draw a line down the middle of the living room and say, if you cross that line, you violated this order of protection. If you cross that line, how ridiculous. What the judge did in that is throw it right back to the police. It's your problem. I wrote the order of protection, even though it's unenforceable and ridiculous. But they do write. And like for example, War of they, the
1: Roses. He, it sounds like the movie War
2: of the Roses, bell. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and right. if they
2: wrote like an order of protection for this when they were traveling together in a van, how would that be enforced? You know what I mean? So some of this yeah. stuff, you know, someone else in the chat said uh, I was talking about how training costs money. That homicide investigations also cost money, one hundred percent. And when I said that, I think police love training. Bring the training on. I would love to go to training, but guess what? They did not want to pay for it. So, I mean, we could, they they, that's a thing that politicians use to when something goes wrong, they they use the T word
1: training. They need more training, (laughs) you know, right. Listen, the training, we did plenty of in-service training in my time on the job. It would pop up periodically. A lot of times it was tactics or it was domestic violence or whatever it was dealing with emotionally disturbed people. So listen, there's definitely a place for training, but I don't know that any more training. I mean, you saw them exhibit their training when they called on a female police officer to come to the scene and they did the interview separately. And then they even went into the, the specific statute in the law that says must arrest if these things, and they read through it and they discussed it. He discussed it with the Sergeant. So I think all of those things were definitely done. And listen, is there more training you can always there's always room for improvement obviously and listen if there was something that we could improve on it would have saved gabby i would love to to talk about it and 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 you know implement it but uh and i think there are things that are going to be learned from this it's you know there's always something that come out of a bad situation and uh you know but uh you know there were some other things i'd like to talk about bill that i learned from watching the episode uh the, the second episode of dr phil yeah uh, uh Jim Schmidt, which was uh, Gabby's stepdad, he actually went out to the exact location where mm-hmm. Gabby's body was found. And they took a camera and they kind of went on the trail to get. Now, as we know, the Bethunes actually filmed the white van on the side of the road. And the body was found about 200, 250 yards away. And it was not an easy trek. There was uh, streams that you had to get over. And it was actually they showed um, like logs that were placed over the stream to get to it. And so you had to do like a balancing act to get over this little stream and stuff. And he described the actual spot and they showed it where her body was found. And it sounds like it was actually a campfire. Yeah. That was was, uh, probably there was a campfire there. And he believed that there was a tent set up in the spot where uh, Gabby's body was found. On the screen, on the screen is the video van van of them finding the van. Plates, I just wanted to show you guys this. We're also getting the, the uh, audio, Bill. I don't know if you meant for the audio to be on.
6: Yeah, yeah. The I, van was completely okay. <laughs>
4: dark. There was nobody there, so we decided to continue on our way.
6: Yeah, the van looked like it was pretty much uh, kind of abandoned. We figured maybe they were out hiking or they were just chilling inside. There was no doors open. You know, it was just... Um, just kind of, you know, neat to see a Florida plate, you know, on the other side of the country. is not something you see all the time.
4: But we wanted to include this in the video just in any way that we can help and get this out there to be able to find Gabby Petito. So if you could share it, if you know anything, um, please don't hesitate.
6: Yeah, we're as we're coming up on it, we're approaching it up here on the left hand side. This is most definitely Gabby Petito's. Board transit van. It's kind of wild. Like it's saying a little bit. Cause we drove past, we actually weren't able to find any sites and we ended up driving back through solid again, but here it is on the left. So,
4: and I slowed it down so you can possibly see it a little bit
2: better.
6: Kind of freaky for a late Saturday evening, but we just kind of had a brain fart. Oh my God.
2: You know, I can't say it enough times. Uh, how amazing those people were that they found that van. Um, they're so humble. Uh, they're just great people. And that really enabled the police and the authorities to uh, find Gabby Petito. And she was about 250 yards from that so, van. Um,
1: so important. So important to this investigation. So important were those, the Bethunes, those people. That was that was just unbelievable. But uh, get, getting back to what Jim Smith Jim Schmidt said about the location. He 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 basically went out there with the FBI agents and the local law enforcement, and they told him the exact positioning that by uh, Gabby's body was found in. And he said that it appeared where where our head was that they, if they may have been facing towards a mountain ridge and he believed there might have been a tent there and at her feet or somewhere past where her feet would have been was scorched earth from a campfire. And the funny thing about it is I know there's, there's – uh, a lot of uh, different stories going around. He talked about how when they went into that area, they were staying at a house and there were these two chipmunks that kept coming out. And when he went back to the location, he took some stones and flowers and he made a, a, a stone cross in the exact spot where her body was. And when he put the flowers by where, where her head would have been at the top of the cross, a little chipmunk came out of the hole and was watching him the whole time. And, uh, the, the day before they found the body, they said that there was, uh, some inclement weather had come in and they talked about a rainbow that was over an area. And it turns out that where that rainbow was spotted underneath that rainbow was the spot where her body was found. So there was some, you know, some eerie things that happened. Uh, but when he describes the exact area, it wasn't, he said it wasn't a well-traveled area. And it would be a, a spot where someone might make a, a campground, or a campfire or whatever. Mm-hmm. So whether or not she was killed in the van and brought to the location, I'm starting to think now. That doesn't seem very likely based on what I mm-hmm. saw on that show and his exact description of the uh, of the area. It sounds like it could be that they were camping. there. Maybe they were camping overnight and uh, a, yep. a fight erupted and she was killed and then he just took whatever uh, he took from the, uh, from the scene and then left the location, you know, uh, yeah. Axe
2: wife. Thank you for the four ninety nine super chat. I'm going to read what you said because it's very pertinent to this. I'm an LA County children's social worker, LAPD or LASD in my years of experience would have arrested both and obtained. Uh, I guess that's an order of protection perceived victim. Um, I had said, you know, the same thing uh, had I known about all that information, but, It wasn't clear when this first came out whether, in fact, uh, all that information, that the police had it. And then we learned later on that they did have all that information. So, um, Gisela? I'm sorry, Gisela. Gisela.
5: (laughs) <laughs> they were talking about like following protocol and they just didn't do the last step of that thing that Brian had to sign the next day. That would have been so great to just check on them the next day and make sure he signs that. Not that I, I don't know if it would have changed really anything based on his possible narcissism. However, just following the protocol would have been great because they said it all in the car. This is hard. These are the risks and we should follow this and this and this, but then do exactly that. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying what that lady said, um, ex-wife is just, yeah, yeah, do the protocol. It would have been great. Right. Right. We could have
1: a welfare check. That might've been, yeah. I, I like yeah, that yeah. idea. I think that's a great uh, comment, Gisela. I think that's, uh, yeah. that might've been helpful. It may defused him a little like, oh, we had this incident last night and now they're checking on me today. And who yeah, knows? Just, maybe, they, maybe she would have had to change her heart the next day too if they would have checked in on him and she would have been yeah. more calm. Maybe she would have said, listen, you know what? Here's the truth, what happened? We don't mm-hmm. know. But uh, I like the idea of that. That's a great comment. Maybe that'll be utilized in the future, you know?
2: Aaron, Aaron Olson, is it normal for the police to give Brian and Gabby so many choices with their next step? Seems as though Gabby would not be able to choose what would help her. You know, I, the protocol yeah. that the Moab police were using, I mean, I, I I see a lot of training in what they did. I really do. I yeah. really see that they yeah. seem to be well-trained. Yeah. They weren't like, you know, uh, so what's wrong? You know, they weren't, they were. They didn't blow they, it off, Bill. They right, didn't they blow did, it off. Right. They, they did an investigation. Yeah. We can criticize it now. And I know, we. you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, You know, and I, I just like to say a couple of things about domestic violence in particular. It's a very difficult thing because many times uh, the per the abused person g- goes back to the abuser. Oh, yeah. And how many times and, uh, you know, maybe Gabby was being abused by him and mm-hmm. maybe she did. Maybe the family didn't see the signs of it because yeah. she was living with his family. But, you know, that's a problem, too. It's uh, it's called mm-hmm. almost like Stockholm syndrome, you know. You get it's a used.
5: little, yeah,
2: yeah, it's yeah. similar to that. And you get yeah. people that get, are abused, they almost feel they get a low, um, low uh, self esteem, mm-hmm. low self esteem, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. And they feel, oh, maybe I deserve this. And a, a very curious other thing, and don't take this wrong, is that sometimes when an abused person gets out of a relationship, yeah, the they, next person they date is exactly like the guy sounds. they just left. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's
2: definitely, you know, your social work is listening. I think you know this is true. It's almost yeah. like a psychological a, condition, you know?
5: Yeah, it is. It's a cycle that just is on repeat. And obviously this is a viral case because of the social media they were doing because this happens all the time. Even homicides are a percentage of domestic violence cases. It happens all the time. Why are we focused on this one? Is because they were doing it. We could see the footage and we could see what they were doing. And now we can analyze it, you know, which is interesting and brings up interesting conversations, but usually we don't even see all of this publicly. You know what I mean?
2: No, it's, uh, you know, we actually, myself being in homicide uh, in my last 10 years on the job, I was in homicide. And one of the things that we definitely noticed that was the policy of must arrest definitely cut down on the amount of domestic violence homicides because someone was getting arrested jump street day one. And then the judge was issuing an order of protection and there would be follow-up by family court or criminal court if necessary. Yeah. You know, family court of course is to keep the family together and try to counsel criminal court is to punish the offender. Mm -hmm. So, There was follow-up with that, and you know it definitely did cut down on the amount of domestic violence murders, and that's 100% for sure.
5: I think this case will help a lot of people in the future because it opens up such conversations because, (laughs) as someone there said, I was an airline pilot before, and no one knew how much women are being abused until – I'm not saying I said something, but there was a conference, yes, and I did put up my hand and raised the conversation, and every woman in the room said that they were being abused by other colleagues – that was that opened the conversation. So this is at least starting the conversation of what goes on out there more than what we know.
1: You, you know, another point, uh, Gazella, I think that uh, the fact that we saw Gabby on video from that yeah. August 12th video in such a you know, she, w- she was like really at a disadvantage. She was, it was yeah. a critical state. She was obviously very, very upset. And I think that's what brought so much attention to this case as well. Like you said, there was a social media component because they were, uh, you know, they were going on social media and they were posting all their different movements and yeah. stuff, yeah. but we saw her at such a, I can't think of the right word. She was such a disadvantage. She was so upset. She was in Mm -hmm. such a a sensitive state. And I think that that's what made people say, hey, and I think the good thing that might come out of this, it's a horrible situation, but the good thing Mm -hmm. that might come out of it is going forward, law enforcement officers might say, hey, this might be another Gabby Petito case. Let me go that extra step and do whatever it is. So uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a great thing.
2: You know, Phil, I always felt like that when I went to a domestic violence case. And I never would want to ever walk away from it if I thought that the violence could escalate. Mm-hmm. And I I erred almost all the time on the side of making an arrest because that's the position <laughs> yeah. I was put in.
1: There was always a bully component for me. If someone was bullying, whether it, I had a, a case where uh, a real hardcore drug addict was building bullying his elderly parents and I couldn't wait to get my hands on the guy, so to speak. And then you have these situations where, I mean, if we saw – Brian Laundry in a fit of rage abusing Gabby, I mean, I, I would be willing, I, I couldn't wait to jump on somebody like that. You know, I was always for the underdog in domestic violence situations. I don't like bullies to begin with. And obviously someone who's abuser is a bully. So uh, yeah, like you said, we want to err on the side of caution, Bill. That's a good way of putting it. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out in this case. But let's hope that going forward, uh, you know, all law enforcement across the world are going to maybe take a double uh, a, a second look at something and maybe, you know, uh, separate them. And then what Gisela uh, Gisella brought up, check on them the, ne- the next day to see if yeah. uh, they're still OK. You know, if they're still in a maybe a, a more relaxed and a calm state and they can go on their way now, you know.
2: You know, it's it's funny. Like I think that's a great idea, and like, but the and someone in the chat said, "Family court is hell." So, what does that say to you? Because they're absolutely true. That's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. The the criminal justice system spends so little money on social workers. Mm -hmm. Social workers are paid the worst salaries of any profession, and many times they need to have a master's degree. And they're all the case loaded. Oh, they're the they're overworked. So what does that say about these same politicians that talk about training? They're not mm-hmm. paying people who really need to be paid and right. to be, because you know, they're very important in that whole spectrum of the criminal justice system. Phil, I just want you to do a quick read of this.
1: Sure. <laughs> Joe Murray, a good friend of police off the cuff back and better than ever. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com.
2: Gisela, I wanted to ask you a question because I know that you do an unbelievable job on timelines. I could never, ever confirm that Brian actually got a ride hitching That story was out there, but it was never confirmed by law enforcement. Did you, in fact, confirm that? And what were the dates of of his hitchhiking expedition? On the
5: 29th, um, Miranda Baker picked him up at Coulter Bay Village. That's what she said. And dropped him off right there by Jackson Hole Dam. And then the next one, which I can't remember her, her long name, Jean, something, another lady also dropped him off at the entrance of the camp. That was all on the 29th.
2: But is that possible, and then to be home in Florida on the 1st?
5: I think it's possible, based on what I looked at in the map and how long it takes. I think so. It it, it would be
1: be a long, straight drive. I don't think there would be many stops. He wouldn't be able to stop overnight. And continue uh, and and make that make it back to Florida in that time frame. It would have been a straight drive, but it sounds to me now. Just think about this: if she was killed on the twenty seventh, <laughs> it sounds like a panic move. He was leaving, then yeah. he goes back. It, it could make sense. I, I'm sure that. You know the law enforcement uh, authorities that are investigating this case are looking very closely at that because it does sound like a panic move. And maybe at that point he reaches out to the family and they say, "Come back with the van," or so. Who knows? But it does sound like that's possible. I would really like it to be confirmed one hundred percent. But I guess Mm -hmm. uh, the best we have is what you just told us. You
2: know, Gisela, we don't put anything out there unless it's confirmed by. And I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying us specifically. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's confirmed by law enforcement or some other time, like if there's video footage of it or some other timestamp yeah. like that. Because there's lots and lots of rumors on YouTube, as you know. Yeah, of
5: course. Of course uh, and Gigi, lots of witnesses, yeah.
2: Yeah, lots mm-hmm. of witnesses that didn't witness anything. Yeah. <laughs> Gigi, why wasn't Gabby taken to the hospital considering how highly emotional she was? She may have been suicidal for all they knew, but they did uh, know she was very unstable at that moment. Phil, you want to answer that?
1: Yeah, well, I think the word I was looking for before about Gabby's state of mind was vulnerable. She was definitely very vulnerable, but I think they had given it time for her to calm down. I don't think, I think they assessed her mental state. They didn't think she was emotionally disturbed that she needed a trip to the hospital and an examination by a medical professional or else they would have did that. They would have called an ambulance, had an EMT check her out. I don't think that that was what they came out with at the end of whatever uh, interdiction they had with her. It doesn't seem to me, and and again, I wasn't there, but I did watch most of the footage that's out there of that hour-long interaction with her, and I don't think she was suicidal. She was definitely having a panic attack at one point. She was very upset. She was vulnerable. I think all of those adjectives definitely describe her state of mind, but I don't think that she was in need of medical assistance or an evaluation uh, I could be wrong. I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm Detective Phil. But uh, yeah, I, I think, that, you know, do, do you agree, Bill, what I'm saying in, in direction? Yeah. I'm I mean,
2: I think, look, there's always a way that uh, in the New York city police department, sometimes when you couldn't uh, make something criminal, you would do what was called, you'd EDP somebody. Right. And you'd bring them to the hospital as an emotionally disturbed person. And that they would be uh, evaluated by medical personnel. And in a way be, being brought to a hospital in New York City was almost like what the one person in the chat just said about family court but worse yeah,
6: to be evaluated
2: yeah. in a New York City hospital by an emergency room personnel psych was, wards are uh, it was not no, it was no fun yeah. and again all of those areas of the system they don't spend enough money on it so they I'd like really- to hear
1: what now, I'm, I keep screwing you. Yep. <laughs> what you think about her mental state? What do you, What's your opinion on it as a civilian?
5: I honestly believe the one question that must go forward that everyone needs to ask is if you see someone who's exhibiting st- a state of fear, because they'll be like, no, I'm fine. I'm sorry. It's, everything's fine. That's fear. And I've been in that situation. And I don't mean to spill the trauma on here. <laughs> I call it spill the trauma, like spill the tea. But I've been sexually assaulted, right, a few times, but the point is either walking with the person before the time and seeing police officers, you're kind of like smiling and looking and you're terribly scared. But if someone asked you, are you fine? You'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. But your face is showing like, I'm not fine. If one person asked me, are you scared right now? I would have said, yes, I am so scared. Like, please help me. So one question I wish that everyone could go forward asking if you see someone looks, a man or a woman, like they look a little weird, afraid. Are you scared is a very powerful question because it would have helped me so much in the past. Because when you were someone like that, who's really abusing you and is about to abuse you and telling you they're about to, you feel so scared. You just don't know. And you would make excuses and say, don't worry about it because you don't know what to do. And in that state, you don't know who to trust. Even police officers in that fight or flight state feel like they're about to assault you too. So if someone says, are you scared? It really helps you go, oh, okay. They actually care about my protection. And it will really help. So if they had asked Gabby, are you scared? I really feel like she may have. I'm not sure, but may have said, yeah, I'm really scared right now.
1: Could, you know, Gisela, that's, that's 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 a great, that's a great comment. A and great I'm sorry for you, Gisela, that that happened. But yeah. I think you just, you just, what you said was very, very powerful and smart too. And very smart. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
2: Thank you. Uh,
1: Gisela, the other thing, um, I worked a lot with special victims because special
2: victims, uh, was in the same building as us. I was in homicide. They were next door. And since I was a boss, sometimes I would have to go out with them on, <laughs> on major cases. Oh, well, you like the way I said boss. Yeah.
6: Right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> since I was a boss, I would have to go out with them. And I was so impressed with how good of an interviewers they were.
6: Yeah. And
2: not just with getting information, but how sensitive they were and how they knew how to question people to yeah. get the information. Because sometimes a victim could be a victim of a sex crime and and deny it, not and yeah. not tell you it because they were afraid to. Yep. And they would read the person and they would they would get the information. And I was very mm-hmm. impressed with them. And I said I thought, and maybe it was just during the time I was on the job that they had great special victims detectives because they would they were, they were yeah. outstanding. And this was Manhattan special victims. What you guys see on TV—that's for you nonsense. It's all—it's cr- crap, all right. Oh, it's just—it's just—it's just, it's just total crap. It's you know—it's <laughs> invented by some Hollywood producer. They got to get it done in 40 minutes, 20 minutes commercials. So it's just all Hollywooded up. Sana Elise, half Johnson, thank you much for the $14 super chat. You know, thank everyone that's listening to. I think we got some really outstanding information today. I'm so glad that. Gisela dropped in. Thank I didn't you. know if she'd be in bed sleeping, snoring at this hour, but never. I, I wasn't sure what, and yeah. I know she never sleeps. So I had thought there was a good <laughs> shot that she would show up and Gisela, I'm so happy right. that you did show up to give us, you know, the female perspective on things. And not that I think that's always necessary. I found that, you know, in, in working with special victims and some great interviews, yeah. I found there were some males that were just as sensitive, uh, with female victims and, uh, you know, but it's a lot of times just being female is something that can... It
5: helps, but I'm yeah, telling you yeah, one yeah. question. If you say, are you scared? It's an opening conversation and say, has this person abused you or sexually assaulted you? It made me talk a lot when people ask me that, you know, if if they asked me, it was very rare. But if they ask me, I'm like, oh my word, this and this and this happened. And then you just tell them everything because you're like, whoa, they actually are asking me about my safety. didn't happen a lot, it should happen more so that doesn't matter how sensitive or insensitive you may be. Ask the question, Are you scared? It can help a lot of people because I had when I had
1: interactions with uh female uh whether it was sexual assault victims or domestic violence victims. Uh, usually we did, uh, you know, you wouldn't go to an interview or you wouldn't go talk to someone alone, and you know, I wouldn't take exception to it if that person started to click with my partner or vice versa. So if I started to you know, feel comfortable, or, or uh, I should say, the victim felt comfortable with me. I would excuse my partner, or he would excuse me, whatever. And it doesn't have. Sometimes, you know, you, you make the call right from the jump. You know what? We think a female uh, detective or officer might do a better job of interviewing this person because of the circumstance. That's what we would do. But, uh, like you said, but you really brought up such a great point. I don't think from my memory, if anybody actually asked uh, Gabby, do you feel, are you in danger? Do you feel like you've been placed in danger? Do you feel uh, worried about your safety? Are you unsafe? And she was definitely vulnerable. You could see her state was a vulnerable state of mind. But I think that that's key. You brought up such a, we really learned something good today on the show. And I'm so glad that you came on. That was absolutely important.
2: (laughs) Uh Lynn, Ann, there's a big problem in the connect with victims and police activity. Victim advocates are not employed by the police departments. There should be someone hired full-time or on call victim opinion. You know, those are some of the recommendations that they've made in um police reform. And uh, I think it's being taken into consideration on some police departments. Again, it comes back lots of times to that evil thing called money, you know, yeah. and uh, – the root no. of all evil. Yeah, the root of all evil. No police departments getting look. They're, they're defunding police departments. So you think? Yeah. The first thing on their mind is to hire advocates. I, that's probably the last thing nope. on their mind. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult call. And like I stated earlier, you now have to have a, a, a person present with police officers that would probably need you know tactical training because you know these these domestic violence cases. uh, When you walk into a situation where two people are arguing, I've had a situation where uh, we opened the door to an apartment on a domestic violence call and it was on Christmas day. And there was a guy standing there with a big giant knife and we coaxed him to put the knife down. He threw it down. And then as we started to calm things down, Little do we know he had a steak knife secreted in his bathrobe and he nearly stabbed my partner. So, you know, you have a situation like that. So if it's me and my partner, we have bulletproof vests on, we have guns, we have nightsticks, we have mace, we have all these different, you know, a taser. Now you have a person that doesn't have anything and now you have to worry about their safety. So it's not something that's going to be put uh, social workers with all the police officers that respond on every domestic violence call. It's not practical that you can do that and utilize it. It would take great training and it would take great expense as bill noted
5: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: you know joe murray i'm going to read
2: this even though i'm going to take a lot of i'm going to take a lot of uh read it (laughs) Uh, all right gisela you can respond to this (laughs) gabby was not scared or intimidated by brian she was the one who hit brian so hard that brian hit the curb when the police car was behind them that's not the actions of a scared and intimidated woman you want to answer that gisela
5: Firstly, it's allegedly that she did that, right? Right. We don't know. That's the story they both told that she hit him like that. But that is the possible actions of someone in fight or flight mode. However, I like the question and I like the challenge (laughs) and saying then ask any of them. Are you scared for your safety? It doesn't have to be just Gabby. Ask any person because I was scared before, right before and after being abused in separate situations. And you would say you wouldn't be taking shots with a captain if you're scared. I did. I took shots with a captain because I was terrified. You do anything you say that he will say, and you just follow whatever he tells you to do, and you you look like you're having a great time, but you are scared. So I'm just saying sometimes when you are scared, the actions don't match up, and it's not for people to sniff out, but a question, are you scared, would really help sometimes.
2: Now, Gisela, <laughs> you're referring to you were an airline pilot, the captain yeah. of, of the yeah. airline, and, you, and you're also referring to when you said you took shots, you meant liquor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was
5: trying to get me as drunk as possible because he said, I am going to assault you tonight. This is just what's going to happen. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And he retired wonderfully. And when I told a disciplinary guy uh, uh, two years later, he said, It's because you're hot. (laughs) I'm
2: like, you that
5: can't was say the that.
1: that was the answer. That's crazy. That doesn't
5: help. That doesn't help. I, I no. think
1: that's a, that's really shows a perspective from a victim. Right? That's I mean that you you actually were going along with it because you yeah. were so frightened and you continue. That, that really like a, says something. And uh, yeah, I I so I, I just think helped. I have a better understanding of victims now that you said that. You
2: know,
5: just a little. Just just ask. Yeah. Are you scared because? if someone I've unfortunately been abused a few times cause it's a cycle that does repeat. But if you, if someone asks me, are you scared right now? You look a little bit strange. That is like, yes, please help me. It helps so much. That's the lifeline
1: right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the lifeline. I, I want to comment on what Joe said and I get where he's coming from, but yeah. I think, you know, from my observation of him hitting the curb, she says that when I saw the red lights behind me, I hit his arm You know, that might've been him just reacting to, oh shit, I'm getting pulled over. yeah He might've been cursing at her at that moment. It might've been like a little bit of a struggle. You know, I don't know that that really says that she was an aggressor at that point and caused him to hit the curb. I'm not hundred percent on board with that. I do understand what Joe's saying. It does have some uh, value that it makes sense. But I think, it, in my opinion, I think it was more of a volatile situation. Not a, not a fucking cops are behind us. Excuse my language. Yeah. But you know what I mean? And she hits him and, and she hits his arm. So I think that's probably in that moment of uh, anxiety, panic, uh, you know, uh, he hit the curb. I don't think it was. But he immediately turned it around. He became Mr. Mm. Apology and geez, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was speeding. Yeah. And I didn't mean to hit the curb and no, I don't want my water bottle. His narcissistic behavior took right yeah. over. So yeah. Joe makes, he brings up a great point. I really wish he was on right. He brings up a great point, but I think yeah. it could be debated in both uh, what he's saying and what I'm saying that maybe it was just a volatile moment in there argument. And, you know, cause think about it. If you're trying to drive and there's somebody next to you that you're actually arguing with, you may be cursing at or yelling at, or they're coming back at you. You could easily misguide uh, your driving and and hit into a curb. So I just want to get to this.
2: I want to get to this uh, super chat. Linda Sheldon. I'm sorry. I missed this. Should the officers with the info given for a DV call have searched the van for weapons? Absolutely. 100%. Mm -hmm. They should have searched the van for Mm -hmm. weapons. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo mentioned that early on in this case, yes. he's got that street crime mentality. One hundred percent, it should have been. They, they I, should
1: have asked, "Is it okay if we search the vehicle?" Right, because then you get. Neither one of them said right. no. Red flag, red flag, right. red yeah. flag. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so, and they probably would have agreed. So, Randolph, R- uh, Randall. First thing I was asked by police after I jumped out of a car from an abuser at a light and ran to them was, "Does he have a gun or a knife?" Well, I think that's pretty smart. Very good, police tact. officers to ask that. Folks, also, when you're in the chat, I I can't get to everyone. And uh, you, people accuse us of just reading the people that give us money. Sometimes, you know, you're attracted to that. But I do read other people's uh, uh, statements in the chat. And uh, there's been some excellent, excellent comments in the chat tonight. Uh, yeah. Christine Harmon, as someone who was assaulted on numerous occasions and a victim of DV, I have great empathy for those who suffer at the hands of another. You know mm-hmm. 100%, no one should be in that situation. No one should be bullied. No one should ever hit you. No one. I used to, I taught college for 10 and a half years and I taught it at a inner city college and I used to tell all my students that and I knew that I was speaking to people that were, were uh, that were being abused and I was telling mm. I would tell them all the time, no one should ever put their hands on you. And if they yeah. do, you should not put up with that. You should report mm-hmm. it to the police.
1: And and it goes both ways, Bill. I just want to say that whether it be man, woman, uh, girl on girl, man on man, whatever it is, no one has the right to raise their hands to another. Uh, I mean, almost under any circumstance, obviously to protect something. But in in a domestic situation, you don't have the right to put your hands on. You have a right to disagree or have an argument. That's all normal. But you don't have a right to inflict injury or pain or abuse someone else. I just Want to make that clear.
2: For Sure. Medusa 21 years ago, I was in a DV, a DV advocate called my house. My abuser answered the phone. The phone advocate identified herself to him, knowing it was not me. That wow. made that day into a nightmare for me. That's a, hor- that person should be fired. <laughs> for doing yeah. that. That's horrendous. That's lack of training folks. We're coming up on an hour and 20 minutes. We usually don't <laughs> like to do much more than an hour. I just want to remind you guys, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like this show, please go on to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that Not bell, up. give us a thumbs up. I can get great guests like Gisela all the way from the Netherlands. <laughs> she came on the show. I think she flew her jet to the airport. I closest, did. You know? I did. <laughs> she's, a, she's a pilot. She has no problem doing that. If, if there's a demand for it, she'll get the jet. Right. You know, and, if there's a demand,
5: uh, I'll do it. That's right. So if there's
2: Phil, a demand, she'll carve it up. <laughs> yep, exactly. she'll carve it up. Phil, <laughs> final words. I thought this was an outstanding episode, if I may say myself. Oh. Uh, and, you know, it was
1: great to have Gisela here. But, Phil, final words. Final words. You took the words right out of my mouth. Thank you so much, Gisela, for coming on. And I think you. you've sparked something here today. We had a lot of people. Now, a, a lot of people don't realize it, but we pay attention to that chat or we try to I know Bill has his hands on that for the most part when we do the show I kind of glance over at it but it's very important to keep everybody uh, on board and a lot of domestic violence victims spoke out based on what you said today Gisela and I want to thank you and you made such a great point about any officer anywhere in the world just about if you Get involved in a domestic violence situation. Yeah. Those few little sentences that you came up with, do you feel safe? Do you feel in danger? I think that might be very helpful. Let's throw in yeah. a life ring to someone who's in a situation, like you said, you were in, uh, yeah. and, and I yeah. think that that's great. Um, we came into this show today. I didn't know that you were coming on. I'm so <laughs> glad you were, you did come on and yeah. we were, we were kind of, not that we were struggling. We were going to discuss a few things. There was some things that happened in the last couple of uh days or a week yeah. that were important. And I think one of the things I brought out right in the beginning of the show, we, we touched on all the domestic violence stuff, Definitely Mm -hmm. no one should put their hands on, on another person, but we also have to keep Brian laundry's face in the media. We have to keep the spotlight on Gabby. Uh, real quick uh, from the Dr. Phil show, the uh, Gabby's family they started the Gabby Petito Foundation, and yep. there was another search and rescue similar to Dave Rader's, uh Texas Echo Search. It's called the Grand Teton uh, Search and Rescue. They've uh, recovered somebody else beside they actually helped recover Gabby's remains. And uh, Dr. Dr. Phil was talking about making donations. I'm going to make a donation myself to both of those foundations. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, we'll be seeing. Yeah. Uh, more of you, hopefully. Gisela, fi- <laughs> final words.
5: Final words. Hmm. I don't know. I don't ever say final words. I thought that's Phil's thing.
2: <laughs> I give every. Final I words, give every. Yeah. Listen, I give every guest the chance to give the right? final words. Thank you so.
5: so much for having me on your. I think it's just. Um, you know, I also heard what Joe Murray was saying. But ask any victims or any situation: Are you scared? It would help so much. A lifeline helps so much. Uh, that would be my final. Give it out and carve it up, as Claire says. Carve Giesler, it up.
2: that—that's great <laughs> advice. Uh, thank you it so really much is. for coming on the show, folks. All you folks in the chat today, I'm sorry I couldn't shout out to every one of you. As we love you guys, you're giving Just so much, so much support. You folks that throw us money, we love that. This show does cost money <laughs> to produce, and uh, I really appreciate you guys. And I'm gonna put on our outro now. This was also nice. done by Angie Eng. So guys have a great day and uh God bless. Stay
0: safe. <laughs>